0: too many times I have sat with families uh, who, have, who had just committed or who had a loved one commit suicide. As you can imagine, sitting with the family in that situation is tough. It's usually just sitting with them for a while. But in the coming days, questions begin to surface, and the questions go on and on, and one of the things that I remind families is something that maybe you need to be reminded of today, and I need to be reminded of today, and that is this. God does not judge us on our worst decision in life, but on our best decision in life. He doesn't judge you on the worst decision you've ever made. He judges you on the best decision you've ever made. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, uh, that is what he judges you on. Now, maybe you've felt that before. Maybe you've been taught, no, 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 what, uh, your worst sin or your worst moment, that's how God remembers you. But that's not the gospel. That's not the cross. That's not the resurrection. That's not the New Testament message. If you have put your total trust in Jesus who paid the penalty for your worst decisions, you are judged for your best decision, and you are viewed as righteous, perfect, and holy. One of the great Bible heroes in Scripture made a terrible decision. He was God's chosen man. He was the king of Israel. He was even known later on as the greatest king of Israel. His name is David. He was walking around his roof and you may remember that he saw a lady who was bathing and she obviously didn't have any clothes on. The Bible describes her as being a beautiful woman. Her name is Bathsheba. And from the rooftop, he summoned this lady by the name of Bathsheba. They uh, got hooked up, so to speak, in modern-day terms. And before you know it, David receives a text message from Bathsheba that maybe looks something like this. I'm pregnant. David's I I spent a lot of time creating that, by the way. (laughs) David's stomach drops, you can imagine, He knows Bathsheba's husband. It's one of his best friends, Uriah. He's at war. David should have been at war fighting for his nation. And everybody's going to know that's not Uriah's kid. That must be David's child. He impregnated her. Immediately, David does what many of us try to do. Instead of face the situation with honesty, he tries to hide it. He tries to save face. And maybe he thinks if if I bring Uriah back from war, give him a little furlough a couple weeks home, he'll be intimate with his wife and everybody will just assume that's Uriah's baby and then we got it fixed, I don't have to come clean. But whenever Uriah comes home, he has too much integrity for that. He says, my men are at war, I'm not gonna do that. And so David hatches out a different plan. He says, all of the army on the front line put Uriah on the front line. Pull back. It will make him isolated, and he will be struck down. That is exactly what happens. Bathsheba is pregnant. Uriah is dead. David is responsible. And then here comes Nathan the prophet. And through a parable, he exposes David's sin. And the rest of this story is we never hear from David again. He is... Removed to the crown. He turns in his palace keys. He's put into, in, into exile on the other side of the kingdom. He loses his riches. and He now lives in a shack. God can never use him again. For those of you who know the story, you know that's not the story. But maybe that's how you feel. Maybe that's your story. I've committed this sin. I've been involved in this, and so God, God can never use me again. I can never be use of his activity in Christ, and that's sometimes how the world makes us feel. With adultery and murder on his resume, you may know the rest of the story. David goes on to be the greatest king in the history of Israel because David did something that was game-changing. The way he responded to his sin was a game changer. It's almost a forgotten virtue today. You may notice in your bulletin, that's the title of today's message, the forgotten virtue. I don't preach on it enough. I don't practice it enough, but David did it here, and it changed the trajectory of his life. Look at First Samuel 13, verse 14. It says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people is speaking of David. And you may look at that verse, if you know your Bible, you know that goes before the scandal. And so you say, well, yeah, you can say that about David before the scandal. How does the Bible speak of him after the Dateline 2020 event? Acts 13, verse 22 says this, hundreds of years later, this is how God still views David. David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. When David's son Solomon was becoming king, This is what the Lord told Solomon. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David, your father, did? That's a lie. David didn't walk before him faithfully with integrity of heart. You want to call adultery upright? You want to call murder upright? How could you possibly say that about a man who committed those sins? Because of what David did. Because of how he responded to his sin, it's a game changer. So here it is. Here's how David responded to his sin. Two words, true repentance. Everybody say those two words with me. True repentance. Why do we have to add the word true? Because you know there's such a thing as false repentance, right? The reason I know there's such a thing as false repentance is because I've done the false repentance thing. I've done the 50% repentance. I've done the halfway repentance, the 99% repentance, but true repentance is a game changer. In your Bible, Psalm 51 and 32 are the two passages that we're going to be today. I want to point out what true repentance looks like. Number one, David confessed his sin. This is one of the true signs of repentance. When you truly repent, you don't blame others. You don't point a finger. You don't put it on other people. This is is really unique for us because we almost never see this today. You would expect to hear David say, "Well, what was Bathsheba doing with the curtains open?" She should have known, "Guys will be guys. We can't help it. It's just the way we're built. She should have shut the curtains. Right, and what was Uriah doing, not spending time with his he hadn't seen his wife in how long, and he's not going to It's Uriah's fault. That's not what David did. Psalm 51 verses 1 through3. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. I'm not an English teacher, but there's such a thing as personal pronouns. In three verses, nine times, David uses a personal pronoun, I, me, or my, referring to his sin. He never put it on somebody else. It's my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, my evil, my sinfulness. Admitting you sin but not taking responsibility is not repentance. You will not receive God's blessing through that. Do you remember when God called out Adam for eating of the fruit of the tree? Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember Adam's response and then Eve's response? Verse 12 the man said, Well, the, the woman. It's the woman's fault. The woman you, you put here with me, I was doing fine before you put here, uh, her with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. What do you want me to do? She cooked dinner for me. Then the Lord God approached the woman. What is this you have done? And what did the woman say? Well, the devil made me do it. <laughs> that serpent deceived me. NIA. And you ask, why do men always blame women for all of our problems? We're just following the biblical example. That's what we're doing. Can all God's people say amen? Half of you said amen. David didn't say, well, it's Bathsheba's fault. He didn't say, the devil made me do it. True repentance is when we take full responsibility for what we have done, no one else to blame, no finger pointing, and God's blessing will come. Number two, David did not give a shadow Confession. Do you know what a shadow confession is? It's when we open up the curtains of our sin, but only a little bit. We only open up the blinds to the window a little bit. A little bit of sun shines in. Just a crack. I have experience in this. I've done the percentage confession. I know what a shadow confession is because I've done it, and it's been done to me where I later learn, oh, there was a whole lot more to that story than what you originally told me. Shadow confession. There is an article called, I Cheated But Only a Little, This study, which involved over 4,000 people, uh, discovered that people who partially confessed their sins felt worse after partially confessing their sins than people who never confessed their sins to begin with. Here's what it says. Confessing for only part of one's transgressions may seem attractive because they offer an opportunity to relieve one's guilt without having to own up to the full consequences of the transgression. But our findings show the opposite is true. People who have partially confessed what they did wrong feel guiltier because they do not take full responsibility for their behaviors. In other words, not only do you have the full guilt of the original sin, now you feel guilty for only partially confessing the sin, so now you have double guilt. Confession is a powerful way to relieve guilt, but only if it works. It only works if you tell the whole truth. 1 John chapter 1 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Number three, David did not minimize his sin. What did he call it? Sin. We don't like the word sin. It's not a popular word. It's actually beginning to be taken out of dictionaries, believe it or not. It's so unpopular, we don't want to use it in our regular vocabulary. What are some other words that we use to confess our sins? We may use the word mistake. Oh, I just made a mistake. It's like a little boy who's playing catch with his dad, and he accidentally overthrows the baseball over his dad's head. Well, he's just a little boy. He's just a beginner. He didn't mean to do it. It was just an accident. that That's a mistake. But somehow we approach our sin, oops, I accidentally, overth- I accidentally robbed the bank. Oops, it was a mistake. <laughs> accidentally killed him while I was running him off the road. Oops, sorry. Just- and that's a way of putting, I didn't mean to do it, it was just an accident. Or the word Disease. Well, that's just the way I'm wired. My great-granddad was an alcoholic. My granddad was an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. I mean, what can you say? I had no choice. It's just like a virus that was passed down. Genetically, it's just a disease. I can't help it. I have nothing to do with it. It's just a sickness we have. Interestingly, sin is called a disease. The Bible says we have all inherited this sin nature, But whenever we approach it like a disease, it's another way of handing it off to somebody else instead of taking responsibility for it. Here's another word that I often hear, and it's the word cope or coping. It's just the way I cope. Because when I was growing up, when my parents did this, this is how I coped. When I was treated this way, this is how I coped. And now as a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 55-year-old, it's just my coping mechanism. But coping is another way to lay blame at somebody else's feet rather than calling it Sin. Psalm 51, verses 4 and 5. Notice different words that David used. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful. At birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So don't call it a mistake. Don't call it a slip up. Don't call it oops and error and judgment. Call it what it is: sin. Augustine, when he was writing Confessions in 8400, describing his conversion, he said, "My sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner." In other words, I couldn't be converted until I admitted I was a sinner. So this is an eye opening, an eye opener for churches today. The the temptation is to come here today and to itch your ears and to tell everybody what they want to hear to make you feel good about yourself and walk out on cloud nine acting like there's no issues. But biblical preaching, biblical teaching will always point to our sin and call us to repentance. Whether it's popular or not, in 2019, there's a blessing in true repentance repentance. So what could happen today all over our country, millions of people could walk out of church feeling giddy, but not having the blessing of God because there's no repentance. We don't want that at Venture Christian Church. Amen? We want the blessing of God. And if that means getting our, our, our toes stepped on, if that means twisting our heart a little bit, if that means calling a spade a spade, then we're going to do it. We're not going to hide it. I have a tendency to hide uh, my sicknesses. According to my wife, and let me say that again. According to my wife, when I'm sick, I have trouble admitting it. So she'll say, Nathan, you've been coughing? Are you sick? No. Nathan, you're not sleeping very well. You're just kind of talking. I mean, she can tell the way I'm sleeping. Nathan, are you sick? No. Nathan, you have 102 fever. Are you sick? No. Nathan, even though you're not sick, can I give you these pills right here? no, I'm not sick. Why would I need any pills if I'm not sick? Interestingly, as it turns out, not admitting you're sick is not a good recipe for healing. I just keep getting worse and worse. The fever gets worse. I sleep worse. I cough worse until finally I get miserable enough, men. Chels, I think I'm sick. (laughs) Oh, really, Nathan? And once I admit it and she gives me the medicine, then I start to feel better. But it doesn't happen until I admit I'm sick. Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy. What's he saying? Everybody's sick, but only a few admit that they're sick. And they're the ones who get the blessing. So if you live with unconfessed sin in your life right now, there's going to be consequences. Emotional, spiritual, and physical. There's fatigue. There's depression. There's gloom. There's anxiety. Some of you may have been living with unconfessed sin for years. You're carrying it around like a weight on your shoulders. You don't even know why you have this weight on your shoulders. You don't know why you're battling these things. It it could be unrepentance. It could be unconfessed sin. There's a a psychology textbook called Coping with Stress. Uh, It says there's physical and emotional problems to keeping secrets. Here's what it says. People who keep secrets, they live with more physical and mental complaints, greater anxiety, more depression, problems such as back pain and headaches. Oh, no. Carl Menninger said, psychiatrist, if I could convince my patients that they are truly forgiven through the cross, 75% of them would never see me again. David described what it was like to hold on to a secret sin. I think I could have... Written these words right here, Psalm 32. When I kept silent, in other words, when I kept my secret, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Have you ever felt that? The weight of your sin. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. When you live with unconfessed sin, there's a barrier relationally, and therefore there's a barrier vertically with God too. It adds a dimension that you cannot get back. So uh, how do you know if you have unconfessed sin today? How do you know? Probably through a question format. This could help you and me. Let's just answer some questions. Number one, do you have an underlying sense of frustration with other people? This is excluding bad drivers, just so you know. Whenever I went through this, I thought, oh, no. But then the Bible says this doesn't include bad drivers. The reason this is important to understand is unconfessed sin leads to guilt and guilt almost always spills over to the people around you in anger. You just start lashing out to the people around you. Because you have this secret, you have this weight upon you, you have this unconfessed sin, and it may even be with you for five years, 10 years, 15 years. You don't even realize it, but it just spills over in frustration to those around you. You become overly irritable. You become short with other people. People cannot make mistakes with you. And if you don't know if you have this, ask other people around you. Actually, don't ask other people around you because they'll be too afraid to tell you. Number two... Have you been avoiding certain people? Is there someone you can think of that you intentionally isolate yourself from, you pull back from, you walk on the other side of the room when they're in the room, and the reason this happens is because there is something between you, there's a secret between you, there's a weight and a pressure between you of something that has happened, and whenever you're around them, the pressure just adds, it comes to the forefront, and so it's easier just to pull back and ignore and isolate and walk the other way. Number three, Have you been defensive lately? Is everything that's said to you, you think in the back of your mind, oh, what was that supposed to mean? And every comment you think was a hidden agenda against you. Oh, what are they trying to say when they say, I think they're trying to attack me. Unconfessed sin leads to unresolved guilt, which almost always leads to defensiveness. So until you come clean with God, acknowledge what you are doing or have done, there is something that stands between you and him. So if there's a blessing to true repentance, what keeps us from doing it? Why do we not do it? If, if that's how I get a blessing, if I truly repent, why do we not do it? Why is it so rare? Here it is, pride. Everybody say pride. Ah, there it is. Pride involves humbling ourselves. We don't want to humble ourselves, so I'm not, I'd am not. i rather just live miserable for the rest of my life than actually humble myself and receive the blessing of God. The Bible talks about pride as being blinding. It hardens our hearts. Confession requires humbling ourselves. It's hard to do. I've been there. I have felt the weight of my sin on my shoulders when I need to confess. I have felt the lump in my throat. Here it comes. I'm going to have to say it. I can't get it out. It's... Yeah. But once you know you get it out, what happens? There is a weight that goes off your shoulders, isn't there? Almost no matter how they respond, it's, it's gone. It's uncovered. James 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will do what? Lift you up. Now, I may humble myself before you, and I'm at the mercy of how you respond. You may not lift me up. You may just keep me down. But whenever you humble yourself to God, he will always lift you you up so I I don't know some of us in here today we may not know the blessing of God there's a barrier in your relationship with the Lord today because because you just won't humble yourself you just won't be that small and you just won't truly repent yeah you'll admit I'm a sinner during communion God forgive me of my sins You, you won't ever call it by name you'll minimize it you'll do a shadow confession and you are withholding the blessing of God in your life As a result, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, confession in the presence of another believer is the most profound kind of humiliation. It hurts. It makes one feel small. It deals a terrible blow to one's pride. To stand there before another Christian as a sinner is an almost unbearable disgrace. But by confessing actual sins, the old self dies a painful, humiliating death. When was the last time you pulled a brother or sister in Christ aside and told them your sins? How long has it been? It's humbling. So when the Bible talks about humbling yourselves, we should be asking, how do I do it? And I'll just, there's probably several ways to do it, but one of the quickest ways to do it is just to confess your sins to a brother or sister in Christ. Number four, David understood the source of his sin. In Psalm 51, verse 10, he says, create in me a pure heart, O God. So a lot of people say, well, She made that mistake, but she's got a good heart. He did that, but he has a good heart. David said the opposite. He said, The reason I did that was because of my heart. And he got to the source of his problem it's the heart. That's words that come out, it came from the heart. Actions that got you there, it came from the heart. And David recognized the only way to actually get better, the only way to actually humble myself and become pure in the sight of the Lord is to have a new heart. That word create is the same word in the first verse of your Bible. Genesis chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning, God what? Created, same word, that God created something out of nothing. He created the entire solar system, the entire universe out of nothing. God has the power to create the universe out of nothing. He has the, David says, I don't want you to fix my heart. I want to do away with my old heart. Give me a brand new heart, oh God. He saw the source of his problem. I've got a heart problem. Give me a new heart. Be a good prayer for all of us, wouldn't it? Number five, David desired to stop the sin. He goes on to say, create me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I want to keep this heart. I want to stay faithful. I want to stay obedient. One of the signs of true repentance isn't just saying you're sorry. It's a desire to put a stop to it. Number six, David wanted to free others. Verse 13 of Psalm 51 says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Now, here's a terrible, maybe this has been given to you. Because you've sinned that way, you can no longer be used for the ministry of the kingdom. You ever felt that or heard that or seen that? Because you messed up, go to the corner of the room. And actually, after true repentance, God does some of his greatest ministry through people who truly repent and truly confess. So David responded with true repentance. What's God's response to David's True repentance. Here it is, two words, full forgiveness. Everybody say those two words with me. Full forgiveness. Now, in your Bibles, you have Psalm 51 and 32. They are tied together. Most believe that Psalm 32 is written after Psalm 51. Your Psalms are not written in chronological order. John Trapp, the scholar, says Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are not just tied together, they are tuned together together. It is actually believed that they were singing the same melody whenever they sang Psalm 51 and 32. I wish there'd be somebody who would write some modern-day song based on Psalm 51 and 32 and put them together. But here's Psalm 32, verse 5. It says this. this. This is the game-changing verse. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin." Is there a phrase in there that seems like it shouldn't be there? Is there something in there that if you were to take away, you wouldn't even notice that it was gone? We would be, we would say it was normal if it ended and you forgave my sin. But that's not what David said. David said, You forgave the guilt of my sin. So so here, here's this is. This could change the rest of your life, what I'm about to tell you. Almost all of us have been taught that God can forgive my sin, but that you're gonna to have to live with the guilt of your sin the rest of your life. And David said, not only did God forgive me of my sin, but he forgave the guilt of my sin. I don't have to carry it around with me. for the... Here's what some people make it seem. Yeah, you sinned and you're forgiven, but now you better feel bad about it for the rest of your life. And the reason you've come up with that is because maybe your spouse has done that to you. Yeah, you're forgiven, but I'm going to remind you every second I get. You'll never forget about that one thing you did 19 years ago. Because I'm going to, you, better, you better hold your head down in shame forever. Yeah, you're forgiven, kind of. But David comes along and says, not only did God forgive me of my sin, he forgave me of the guilt of my sins. Can I just tell you today, if you've been forgiven, you've been forgiven. Then live like it. You don't have to carry it around with you. You don't have to carry the weight with you. At the cross, it can stay there. It can stay in the grave. When Jesus went into the grave and he raised from the grave, he didn't take your sin with you out of the grave. Your sin stayed in that grave. It's buried forever. He forgave me of my sin, and he forgave the guilt of my sin. That's after true repentance. That's after true confession. Man, when you get this, when I get this, this is huge. This is a game changer. Throughout the psalm and throughout all the psalms, it's interesting to, to see the words that David uses to, do, to describe forgiveness. Here's one of the words forgiven. You'll notice this word in Psalm 51 and 32. This word forgiven means to lift your sin up, but he doesn't keep it hovering over your head, right? And then he carries it away. He lifts it up and he carries it away. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, you can no longer see the sin. It is, it is forever forgotten. It is forever buried. And not only does it say that you can't see the sin after he lifts it up and he carries it away, some of you are enjoying this way too much. You all of a sudden don't have a preacher. But after he carries it away, he buries it in the deepest part of the ocean. Don't you like that? Don't we need that? He lifts it, and then he doesn't. See, that's how I forgive sometimes. Yeah, I'm going to forgive it. I'm going to lift it, but I'm going to hold it over my wife's head forever. Yeah, okay, we'll talk about this later. She was about to say amen, then Okay but God carries it away. So that's, that's the word forgiven. What's our next word that sometimes, okay, so the word covered, this is an interesting play on words. David uses the word uncovered to describe confession. So David says this, originally I was covering my sin. Whenever I covered my sin, God uncovered it for everybody to see. But whenever I uncovered it, what did God do? He covered it with his grace and love. So if we're going to sit here with the secret sin and and, and keep uh, keep it covered, what's God eventually going to do? He'll uncover it. But if I will just come out and repent and confess, I uncover it, God will cover it with his grace and love. There's another word that is basically, it's a phrase in the English translation, to not count against. But the word has within it to impute the righteousness of others. So, what this means is, God forgives me. He picks up the sin. He carries it away. He buries it in the deepest part of the ocean. But over here, He takes Jesus' righteousness and He puts it on us so that whenever God sees us, He sees perfection. He sees holiness. He sees righteousness. It's not just that you are given a clean slate, it's that you're given the righteousness of Christ. Whenever God looks at you, He sees Jesus, He sees His holiness. And so he uses the word forgiven, he uses the word covered, he uses the word not count against. And and David, this wasn't even in the New Testament. Somehow he's writing this in the Old Testament, but it's through that kind of celebration that he was able to write Psalm 51 verse 12 where it says, "Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me." Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do you remember when you were saved? Do you remember that day? If you don't, then it may not have happened. But do you remember the joy of your salvation? For me, it was when I came up out of the waters of of baptism. I remember the feeling and the excitement and the joy I had. My sins are forgiven. I felt like I could float on the clouds because I, I didn't have the guilt of sin. I didn't have the shame of sin. I had no weight on my shoulders. When I walked out of that baptistry, I was forgiven and I was joyful. And then what happens over our Christian life, we start sinning again, weight starts to go back on our shoulders, and we lose the joy of our salvation unless we truly repent. And David says, restore to me that joy of salvation that I apparently lost, but I can get back through repentance. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Can I appeal to you for a moment? If you have a secret sin, something that is keeping you from God, something that is keeping you from somebody else, would you confess it and truly repent? And you will find God's favor and his hand upon your life in a way like you've never never seen before. This is part of the gospel. God will show up in your life in an unexplainable way. And if you have confessed your sin, start living in the victory and celebration of God's forgiveness. You don't have to hang your head. You don't have to wallow in guilt. You don't have to walk around like you're second class. There are no second class Christians. There are no second class Christians. There are no second class Christians. I'm waiting for somebody to clap. There are no second class Christians. Help me preach this morning, church. You don't have to stand in the corner of the room. I'll let everybody else do the music. I'll let somebody else do the teaching and the preaching and the welcome. And the you don't, have to, you don't have to wait back there. You are fully forgiven when you confess your sins to the Lord and fully usable. One of my favorite authors is Philip Yancey. I'll close with this. He tells of a time when one of his close friends, a Christian man, sat down with him, a guy who had been married for 15 years. He had three kids. He said to Philip Yancey, I'm no longer in love with my wife. There's this other woman now. I'm going to leave my wife, and I'm going to marry this other woman. The guy basically said to Philip Yancey, will God forgive me for what I'm about to do? Will God forgive me for what I'm about to do? Ooh. And Philip Yancey sat there for a while, and he pondered the question, and he answered it better than I could have ever answered it, and he put it this way. Will God forgive me for what I'm about to do? Mm. In other words, if I go confess, if I go confess, isn't it God's job to forgive me? Isn't that what God does? Like that's his job, isn't it? Here's what Philippians said. Can God forgive you? Of course. You know the Bible. But what we have to go through to commit sin distances us from God, and there's no guarantee you will ever want to come back. You ask me about forgiveness now, But will you even want it later? Can God forgive you? Yes. Will you be the kind of person who wants God's forgiveness? That's another question entirely. When you live with unconfessed sin, can God forgive you later? Yes. Will you be the kind of person who wants it later? That's another question. So, David's Psalms is a story for two different kinds of people. If you're in here today and you've been coming here week after week and you sit in those chairs, and you sing the songs, and you listen to the sermons, and you participate in the serving and the volunteering, but you walk in here week after week with an unconfessed sin and a weight on your shoulders. No confession, no power. No repentance, no blessing. And you are coming in here without the joy of your salvation, and because of the lack of the joy of your salvation, that is actually why you're unusable by God. No joy, no usability. It's the joy of our salvation that is so attractive to the outside world. It's for that person. Get it right. Confess. Repent. The New Testament says it is God's will that everyone repents and comes to salvation to God. It's also for a second kind of person. It's for those of you who are Christians. You have walked away from that life of sin or that addiction, or that stronghold, or that mistake, you have received the forgiveness of sin and guilt, and it's time you start walking out of here in victory. It's time that you start holding your head up. It's time that you start pulling your chest out. Not too far, because that's a weird way to walk. But Jesus has forgiven you, And whenever we do not live that way, we are downplaying what he did at the cross for us. How many of you are with me? I don't want to downplay the cross. I don't want to downplay the cross. And what he did for me, he has given me victory. He has given me celebration. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's stand here today. Let's live in the victory that Jesus has provided for us. How many of you are grateful for God's full forgiveness? It's available to all of us.